Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The FT Annuities why you need to be more careful than ever when choosing one. The great bond bull market goes on, but could rising interest rates bring it to a halt? And the football fund, run by former England boss Terry Venables. Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Jonathan Ely and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form, with the help of my FT colleagues Joe Cumbo. Hello. And Emma Dunkley. Hello. Plus, a special studio guest, Trevor Greetham, Head of Asset Allocation at Fidelity. Hello. Next April, as we've discussed many times on The Money Show, no one in the UK will be compelled to buy an annuity when they convert their accumulated pension savings into an income. But insurers keep telling us that annuities will still form a big part of many people's retirement planning. And in the meantime, for many savers, they're still effectively the only game in town. There are two main problems with annuities, neither of which have really been fixed by the reforms announced in the budget. One is that the rates they offer are poor, because the yields on government bonds are very low. With interest rates stuck at 0.5%, there's not much the annuity providers can do about that. But the other thing is that annuity rates vary widely. Things like where you live, how old you are and your state of health will all affect an insurer's view on how long you might live, and therefore what rate they will offer you. And there are commercial considerations too. An insurer that wants to attract lots of new business might offer better rates than one for whom annuities are a less important business line. Joe Cumbo has been looking at recent trends in annuity pricing. Joe, what's been happening lately? Um, what we're seeing is that annuity rates have indeed come down for those people who are still buying single life level annuities, which was the most widely sold annuity in the market. According to figures supplied to me by uh, the Annuity Bureau, in May this year, the top rate for a level single life annuity for a £100,000 pot was about 5480 but um, that has dropped down to about 5,399. So we've seen a, a downward trend there. But we're also seeing, the other trend we're seeing is the gap between the best and worst rates in the market, the top and the bottom of the table, is also widening according to the figures published by the annuity uh, window, which is the industry body's comparison table. The average gap between the best and worst rates is now nearly 35%. Now, if you 
get the wrong deal in the market, you get the bottom rate, that could mean thousands of pounds less income over your lifetime. So it's fairly significant what's going on in the market. That's right, because of course an annuity is an irreversible commitment. Now, why has the gap between best and worst widened so much lately? The bombshell, which was the Chancellor's announcement in March that the annuity market will change quite uh, significantly in April, there will no longer be any need for anyone to buy an annuity because they'll have a new option to take out their funds as cash rather than a secure income, uh, has changed the the market behaviour considerably. There are fewer people buying annuities This has led to insurers to start focusing on developing other products to attract the market in April. And so they haven't been as competitive with their annuity rates. They certainly haven't been trying as hard to attract new customers. Business has fallen off. So we've seen rates depress. What sort of new products might they be working on? I mean, we haven't really seen much in the way of innovation so far, but presumably behind the scenes, there's lots of stuff going on. There is lots going on behind the scenes because the market is in transition at the moment. The one thing that is delaying any clearer development of products or arrival of them on the market is that the government is still finalising its rules, which will uh, be in force in April next year. But we have seen some products launched so far, um, very early products such as 12-month annuities, which came out a couple of months ago. But from uh, April next year, we can expect to see a broader range of products which might take the shape of hybrid products which combine both features of an annuity and uh, draw down together so that the individual might get a product that offers them some secure income as well as uh, opportunity for their uh, capital to continue growing. The rules which will allow this, still need to be finalised. Once they're finalised, we will see those products on the shelves. Will that mean the death of annuities or will they still work for, for a smaller number of people? I don't think it's going to mean the death of annuities. We probably will see different types of annuities. Annuities will change into what I've just described as products that have features of annuities that will offer some type of secure income for life, which people like that security, but also offer elements of flexible uh, drawdown, etc., so that there is opportunities for investment growth. But certainly the big insurance companies are forecasting that the annuity market, as we know at the lifetime annuity market, is is going to take a, a further hit next year. That's why they're very focused on developing new products. Thank you very much, Joe. You can always check the latest annuity rates on offer either via the tools and calculators section of our website at ft.com forward slash money or via the tables supplied by the Annuity Bureau in every print edition of FT Money. And remember, when it comes to annuities, it always pays to shop around. Still to come on the show, why you should show Terry Venable's new football fund, the red card. But first, let's look at the bond market. A couple of weeks ago, the city regulator said that investors in corporate bond funds, which buy the debt issued by companies, might be in for a shock when interest rates start to rise. But does the same apply to government bonds, which are treated as virtually risk-free assets by many portfolio managers? Governments issue bonds for long-term financing and to bridge any shortfall between what they spend and what they take in terms of tax revenue. In countries like the UK and the US, there's been a big gap, the so-called deficit, between tax and spending, so a lot of new bonds have been issued. Normally, such a rush of supply might be expected to result in prices falling. 
But here's the funny thing. Government bond prices have been remarkably resilient. And this isn't new. Give or take a few down periods, prices have been marching steadily higher and yields inexorably lower ever since Margaret Thatcher was in number 10 and Ronald Reagan was in the White House. Now, both the Iron Lady and the so-called Gipper are now long dead, but the bull market in bonds is still going strong after 30 years. Or is it? Last month, two members of the Bank of England's rate-setting committee voted in favour of raising the UK's interest rates. They could start to go up as early as next year. US interest rates are also likely to rise at some point in 2015. Will this bring the Great Bond Party to an end? Let's ask Trevor Greeton, who is Head of Asset Allocation at Fidelity Worldwide Investment. Trevor, welcome to the show. First of all, can you explain this conundrum whereby more supply somehow leads to prices going up rather than down? There are three reasons why prices in the bond market have risen in the last year or so. One of them is that the central banks are very big buyers of bonds. Um, Interest rates are at zero and the central banks can't cut interest rates anymore to stimulate the economy. So what they've been doing is pumping money in by buying bonds. So although the supply is very high, the central banks have been massive buyers. The second reason is that even though the unemployment rates have been dropping, there's hidden slack in the labour market. There are lots of people being employed in part-time jobs and low-wage jobs that other people could take their place in, and therefore it's very hard for those sort of people to ask for a pay rise. And thirdly, recently, we've had all the geopolitical stress with Ukraine and stuff going on in Iraq, which has generally caused people to sell other assets and move into government bonds. We mentioned interest rates uh, just there. Why are interest rates, as in central bank interest rates, so important when it comes to talking about bonds? We all seem very fixated on when rates are going to rise. Well, when you're buying a government bond, what you're doing is you're taking account of two things. You're taking account of the level of interest you think you need to live off, and you're also taking account of inflation. And when people are thinking about the, the sort of level of interest that makes sense, they're thinking about where central bank interest rates will be over the medium term. So central bank interest rates are zero. Uh, Very short-dated bonds are going to be very close to zero in in yield. Uh, But the thing is, rates won't stay at zero. We know they've got to go up at some point. The normal level for base rates in the UK across a long economic cycle should be something close to the the nominal growth rate in the economy. And the economy tends to grow about 2% a year in real terms. So it's real activity increasing by 2% every year on average. And the inflation target for the central bank is 2%. So you add the two together, bond yields should be, central bank rates and bond yields should be something like 4%. And if the central bank wanted to have policy high enough, tight enough to slow things down, maybe they go even higher. So we're at a situation where if you're buying a a gilt at the moment, a 10-year gilt yielding about 2.5% to maturity, that's the rate you're locking in if you hold it for 10 years. Uh, But the risk is that in in two or three years' time, it will be yielding more like 5%. And if you're owning a bond fund, you'll see a capital loss. It could be a 10 or a 20% capital loss over the next few years. I have to say, none of that sounds particularly compelling, the the potential for a capital loss uh, and locking in a return that's not much more than inflation for the next 10 years. Um, Given that, why, why do people hold bonds? Why is there this very large level of demand worldwide for these assets? Well, the reason there's so much demand for bonds, government bonds worldwide, is they're the only truly risk-free asset. So if you want to be sure of getting your money back, there are some instances where governments don't pay up, but they're pretty rare. 
And even in the financial crisis we had recently, um, all of the major developed economies have paid their coupons, they paid their money back at the end of the bond term. So they're a safe investment in the sense that you get your money back, but they don't necessarily protect you against inflation. People who bought long-term bonds in the 1960s got their money back, but the rampant inflation of the 70s meant it wasn't worth anything at the end. Uh, So people own the bonds because they're risk-free, and they also mix them in portfolios to kind of dampen down the day-to-day volatility. And we think multi-asset funds, which include a bit of exposure to stocks, uh, where valuations are still okay and the economies are growing, and commodities are a hedge against a big inflation shock, uh, might actually be safer than government bonds at the moment because they protect you against these these scenarios in which the bonds are losing you money. The city regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, was talking about corporate bond funds a few weeks ago when it said, well, um, if interest rates do start to go up and everybody wants to sell at once, there could be problems, uh, There could be uh, it could be difficult to sell some of these assets. Does the same risk warning apply, if you like, to government bonds, or are, are they much more liquid? They're much, much more liquid. And in the case where a government has its own currency and its own central bank, in the case of the UK, the central bank will print money if needs be to repay the investors on, on the uh, on at the end of the term. So the money will be created one way or another. Perhaps it creates inflation or there's some other problem with all that money printing. But the governments have control of the printing presses uh, in the end and, and uh, the liquidity will always be good in those sorts of government bond markets. And finally, Trevor, I mean, many people over the years have have said, oh, well, um, you know, this bond bull market is going to end. It's going to end now for for reasons X, Y or Z. I mean, most obviously at the start of this year, a lot of people were saying um, this is it for bonds. Equities are going to be the the best asset class of 2014. Would you recommend investors buy government bonds at the moment or do you think they're just too expensive? I would recommend government bonds as part of a mixed fund in order to dampen down volatility and to protect you against you know a, a big shock if there were a slump in china or some some big blow up with 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 russia uh, the bonds will protect you in a way that the stocks in your portfolio won't um, i don't think there's going to be a tremendous rapid sell-off in bond markets either i think the gradual bull market you've described has been going 30 years it might take sort of five or ten years before yields get up to the level of sort of five percent i was talking about it may well be, you know, if they try to raise interest rates in this country, the housing market immediately rolls over and they can't raise rates very much. We just don't know. So I think bonds have a very important stabilising role in a portfolio. But um, I would not buy a bond at the moment thinking it's a safe, sensible 10-year investment to protect you against inflation. It isn't. Thank you very much. That was Trevor Greetham, Head of Asset Allocation at Fidelity Worldwide Investment. You can read more about why government bonds have performed so well in this weekend's cover feature, which, incidentally, was written by Elaine Moore, formerly of The Money Parish. We also look at the different ways of investing in government debt and consider why countries that a couple of years ago were regarded as basket cases can now borrow at the same rates as the UK. FT Money is part of the Weekend FT, which is on sale on both Saturday and Sunday. And you can read online at any time. Just go to ft.com forward slash money. The Weekend FT is also available on mobile devices via a free web app in both Apple and Android versions. And finally, we're always keen to hear your views. You can email us directly on money at ft.com or you can leave comments on the foot of articles. On to our final item for today. In case you hadn't noticed, the football season has started. 
Record amounts of money have been spent on new players in the transfer window. Player wages have soared at yet further heights. And BT and Sky are spending fortunes advertising their Premier League coverage. Surely, with all this money sloshing around, there must be a way for investors to profit from football. One man who thinks there is, is Terry Venables, the former England manager nicknamed El Tell, thanks to his stint in charge of Barcelona. Venables has set up a football fund to nurture young players and to hopefully provide returns to investors. So how does it work? And will it prove any more successful than previous attempts to tap into one of the world's richest sports? Emma Dunkley, who I should warn you is an Arsenal fan, has more. Emma, first of all, what is Terry up to? Yes, so El Tell and three other former professional football players have launched the Football Talent Fund. Um, the idea is is that it will provide coaching and education to young, talented players based overseas. Because Terry believes that there's a bit of a poor conversion rate between the young talent on, on pitch at junior level and adolescent level and, and them being transferred into the Premier League and other major leagues globally. So that's the idea behind the fund. The fund will also take a stake in a second-tier Portuguese football club, with the idea being that these young players can then use it as a feeder club and move on to other clubs globally. Um, So in order to provide this support, Terry's looking to raise £5 million, so investors will have to pay a minimum of £5,000 and then units of £1,000 thereafter. In return for that, investors should hopefully get a minimum of 12% annual return, There's also a dividend that should be paid after the third year of operation. 12% sounds like a fantastic um, return. Presumably there's quite a lot of risk involved in this. And what's the mechanism by which those returns are actually generated? Is it selling the players effectively? Yes, so the returns are generated via a percentage of the agency rights of those players that make it on to another club and stay there for a minimum period of five years. So there's quite a bit of risk insofar as it's based on the individual players and whether they make it into a club and then can stay for that minimum period. So there's quite a lot of um, pressure and risk in that regard in case they get injured or they're not quite talented enough as it turns out. On top of that, you've also got risks surrounding the fund. It's actually based offshore in a place called Anguilla, which is a British-owned territory in the Caribbean. This means that the fund is not actually subject to the regulation of the Financial Conduct Authority, so you have none of the safeguards in place. There are also concerns over the high fee structure. Compared to mainstream investments, it's very expensive. So you've got a 2% annual management charge, a 1% admin fee. And then on top of this, you've also got 6% that is paid to so-called introducers who offer the fund to certain people. Now, just to say that in the UK, the FCA does not allow for regulated advisors to do this. So, you know, if you're offered the fund, that it's probably not via a regulated advisor. And on top of this, the management of the fund is overseen by one of the football professional football players, which obviously brings into question how much um, sort of investment management experience does he have, but also a company called Cavendish, um, which is based in Anguilla. So not to be confused with the Cavendish asset management that's based in London. So there are a few risks there, really, in terms of player uncertainty um, and then the fund structure itself. As if all that were not enough, um, the history of investing in football isn't exactly 
uh, uh, covered in glory, is it? I mean, this is, for a start, this is not the first uh, football fund that there's ever been, is there? That's right. So there was the Singer and Freelander Football Fund that was launched in 97 at a time when there was a serious surge in interest because there was increased TV coverage of football um, on the likes of Cable and Sky as well. Um, And there were a lot of major clubs listing at this time. So there was a lot of euphoria and interest and a lot of hype surrounding the sport. And so, in a sense, the fund sort of rode on the back of this optimism at the time. You also had Alan Hansen, who was employed as an advisor for the fund. So obviously it brings a sense of um, authenticity and celebrity there as well, which perhaps also helped to sell the fund. But... It's quite a niche investment and despite revenues rising at clubs, the soaring wages of players is putting a lot of cost pressure on. So actually profits have been affected and it's it's tough to pick the right stock in this in this arena. So as a result, the fund actually fell about 40% from 97 to 2001 and investors lost a lot of money. Subsequently, the fund was converted into a sort of broader UK growth fund, but it, it sort of burnt a lot of investors who thought football might be a good area in which to invest. And finally, I mean, you mentioned there was a big uh, sort of wave of uh, stock market listings for football clubs in the 1990s. Are any of them still listed on the stock market? Yes. So there were probably around 30 clubs or so in the UK that were listed around that time in the 90s. But a lot of them have run into financial troubles. There's been a lack of liquidity and many have delisted. So there's now there's, there's only really a handful of clubs that are currently listed, including Arsenal, Celtic, Rangers. You've got some Italy-based clubs such as Juventus listed in other stock exchanges. And you've also got Manchester United who listed in the US in 2012. But again, there are risks involved. So many have delisted over the years. And for example, being an Arsenal fan, I've I've looked at the Arsenal fan share scheme, which offered around 100 shares to loyal fans. But that's actually having to wind up due to a lack of liquidity and, and people not really trading the shares and a lack of other shares that the scheme can buy. So due to funding problems as well, this scheme is having to wind up. It all looks rather like a second yellow card to me. Thanks very much, Emma. There's lots more on the history of football investing in this weekend's FT Money, or you can read online at ft.com forward slash money. Other highlights this week? Small cap investor John Lee on why corporate governance is largely bunk. Author Lars Croyer on why we buy far too much insurance. And we look at how Terry Walker, the unlikely star of the BBC miniseries Scrappers, made his millions. The Money Show will take a break next week, but we'll be back in early September. For now, it's goodbye from me, Joe, Emma and our special guest, Trevor Greetham. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.